Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Hello, everybody. Hi. 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 I'm Telen. Hi. I'm Ashley. <laughs> Fucking dogs having a hairball attack. Hey. Told her she had to be good and oh, quiet. Sweet. Yeah. And yeah. She waits until we're actually doing this. And horf, then horf, to... horf. She's just yakking on a bone. bone. <laughs> well, maybe if you didn't feed him from the table, eh? No, no. No. He probably just nosing through the trash. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Episode uh, 101. Yeesh. Brought to you by Unsolved Murders. <laughs> those things that you guys everybody hates this because you don't get any I fucking know. closure but I, yeah i kept hoping that even though i knew they were all unsolved i was like maybe there's something they're like oh surprise they're not unsolved anymore <laughs> right this just, just because in. just the, <laughs> this just in because you guys are doing a podcast we solved these for you all of them all all them they're all solved just for you yep these are all unsolved murders and then we're going to move on to a couple of other things which you know what's fucked up is that I posted something today about a little girl in New York whose dad fucking chained her in that car and then I set it on fire. That. And that kind of coincides with an upcoming episode. I don't like it. Who the fuck burns their baby to death because they're going through a custody battle or they're in the middle of some heated fucking divorce? Like, I'll show you. Can't you figure what? out something else to do? Can't you, like, tear up pictures or something? I don't Dude, know. I don't That's what I do. Know. Let me People tear are just rotten human beings. So today we're doing unsolved murders. Before, 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 before we get squared up on that, um, if you guys are interested in donating to our Patreon, checking out our sponsors, you can go to ageofradio.org slash calling me dead. Yes, you sure can. And you can also check out all the other shows on the syndicate. If you guys want to look up the hashtag Age of Radioverse, you can see all the things that are hashtagged Age of Radioverse. On Instagram, you might see our faces on there here and there. You just might. You might. You might. Um, also, thank you very much to our examinators, who are... Melissa Morgan. Rhett Harris. Sharon Hoffman. So, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to every single one of our Patreon members. Um, if you guys are interested in checking us out on social media, you can follow us at Color Me Dead Podcast on Instagram or Color Me Dead Angel. Or at Gory underscore Nikki. You can find us on Facebook at Color Me Dead Podcast. And for Fuckery Most Foul, you can join us on the Color Me Dead Podcast group. If you want to find us on Twitter, it's Color Me Dead Pod. Sometimes we're there. Well, are you there more now? I'm not. not. Really. I try. I get on I Twitter. As, I, I try to get on Twitter, and I usually do. You know what the fucked up thing is? Is I get on Twitter after Game of Thrones <laughs> to like see all the shit people are losing their minds about. I feel like it just opens my ADD door, and I'm like, oh, I just got so overwhelmed. I think I need to have a freak out and shut down. <laughs> oh, no more. Me. But I just. I don't know. Twitter's not my thing. And I try and I try really hard. But if I don't, don't judge me. I'm just too stupid for it. Like, I don't get it. I feel like, yeah, I don't get it. So, you say it's our soul. We're going to get squared up. Why do I keep saying squared up? I don't know. Like, I'm going to fight somebody over you this are. episode. That's and then all I can think about is square dance. Have you heard that Eminem song? Of course. Don't see it now. <laughs> we gonna have a good time. All I think of is this old fucking, it's, I can't remember, it's an old 90s, like, rap artist. Anyway, it's like a hidden track on their CD, but it's like, um, oh yeah, they're like making fun of fucking square dancing. Anyway, they're like, you know, you fucking whirl, whirl, twist and twirl, whirl around like a flying squirrel and everybody promenade, <laughs> yeehaw, grab your partner, the dirty old thing, follow through with an elbow swing, yeehaw. <laughs> Like, <laughs> fucking square dance. So right. we're going to start with the unsolved murder of Regina May Armstrong. Okay. So this took place back in the 80s. Okay. So the unsolved murder of Regina May Armstrong. Now, every year, tours flock to Orlando, Florida, which is one of the most visited destinations in all of the world. Mm-hmm. Disney World, you know, the happiest fucking place on earth. Where which- a Florida man lives. <laughs> <laughs> Florida man. No kidding. Um, 
And and if you've never been to Disney, you should go because it really is the happiest place on it earth. It is. It's amazing. Except for the, it's a small world. Don't go on that ride. It's a fucking trap. Because then it's in your head for the next ping, 17 ping, years. Ping, ping. Yeah. And I hate the fact that it's in 17 different languages. Not because I have an affinity for like, you, you can only speak the Queen's English. No, it's nothing like that. It's that you don't know that language. No. And then it gets stuck in your head. And here's the in thing. In a random language. <laughs> in a random language. The beat, the tone, it's all ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding. Ha, so far. Yeah, and it, like, they do it in... Like, it's in Mongolian. I don't fucking know Mongolian. But the catch is, they know you're going to go on it because it's cool in there. Like, well, you can cool and off for a second. <laughs> and it's like, it's it's like a rite of passage. You have to mm. go on the It's a Small World Tour, which is exponentially difficult for my husband and my son because those rides were not meant to hold people they over six foot three. Rides. <laughs> they are small rides. They are small rides in a small all. world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small ride after all but it is kind of cool in there though like oh, by yeah. the time you get but then you get out and you're like you know what i could use it's a small world, world after all <laughs> and then like you'll be sitting in line and you're like you know what i need a frosty and a corn dog and a ping 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 <laughs> ping, ping ping i had that stuck in my head legitimately <laughs> fucking like well it's been almost a year now <laughs> <laughs> So this was last June. I'm just now getting to a point where I can sleep without seeing the burning mannequins in my head. God damn it. Okay. Back to the Florida man. Back. So there's a Florida man. Okay, now this is the main drawing point for tourists worldwide, boasting millions of visitors every year. Despite the facade of bliss, Florida, ha- Florida has a much darker side. Obviously. Wait, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's... That's good to know. This is new information. Serial killers such as Ted Bundy and Aileen Wuornos. Eileen. I can't say her name Come right on, Eileen. I have, as soon as I say Eileen, I know it's, I'm like, Aileen, Eileen. <sighs> anyway, Wuornos, given the sexy eyes. <laughs> sexy eyes, Wuornos. <laughs> Hailing from the Sunshine State, Florida has had over 845 serial killings since 1900. Jesus Christ. I know. The statistic provided by the FD, FDI, the FBI. They're like the FDA and the FBI had a baby. So this, the is, this is me trying to function on about 3% of my brain. Sorry. <laughs> I'd say you're doing pretty good on 3%. Oh, fuck, it's Just a take it as now. a win. <laughs> um, the, okay, so the, the statistic provided by the FBI indicates that Florida ranks number three in the states with the most serial murder. Damn. So Regina was born March 16th of 1979 five-year-old regina may armstrong called orlando home now regina's mother donna was in the in charge of the cafeteria at mid florida tech while her father bob worked for the culligan water conditioning company she had a nine-year-old sister named christina who had been dealt a very unfortunate hand when it came to life she had been diagnosed with alport syndrome and it's a a hereditary nephritis 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 no it's nephritis nefertiti i don't know nefertiti's <laughs> it's a god a greek goddess i don't know man nefertiti's, nefertiti's she, uh, that wasn't greek i know i was just making shit up oh you're like <laughs> nefertitis just- nefertiti for 500 alex <laughs> who is a hereditary nefertiti <laughs> <laughs> what is a hereditary fuckstick oh man <laughs> I can, it's just going to be playtime. Sorry, guys. Sorry. This is what you get today. You get unsolved playtime. Yes. Jesus. Okay. So it's a hereditary nephritis that cost her more than most of her hearing. In fact, in 1990, Christina would receive a kidney transplant. Part of it paid for by Sheila Ryan, who was a 55 million lottery winner. Damn. I want 55 million. I'll, yeah, I'll help people out with their medical bills also. Yeah, Five, right? 55 million. Fuck. The young family lived in a really neat little apartment on the east side of the Orlando Commercial District, and Regina had just finished kindergarten. She loved climbing trees, collecting bugs, and if you put her in a dress and a pair of shoes, she would try to be a lady, but for such a little girl, she was just, she was kind of a mess. She was like, a lot like your Addison. Yeah. I can't be dirty. I've always got a runny nose, and 
God forbid that actual food go in my mouth when I eat. It's going to go all over whatever I have on. I need everyone to know what exactly I had. what I had. It's got to be on my face. I have it one inch on each side, right? <laughs> on the chin, a little down the shirt. Some hands, something hidden away in my shoe for later, mm-hmm. just so you can be like, "How the fuck did that get in there?" I just had it. She just had it. She was a very little girl who was also a great big foodie, and she would often tell people that her favorite food was cherries. Aww. And she was that little girl that could put down a three course meal that should have been served to a rather large adult. Damn. It was a pleasant summer's morning, June eighteenth of nineteen eighty five. Bob had dropped off Regina and Krista. Christina at the babysitter's house in Cimarron Boulevard in Southeast Orlando. Now, Regina kissed her husband. Holy shit, mouth. Come on. She was married? She was like nine. <laughs> she was five. Oh, five. I have them all confused. I don't know how old anybody was right now. Um, she hugged and kissed her dad goodbye and said, Goodbye, Daddy. I'll see you tonight. And jumped out of the truck to go to the babysitter's house. This was the last time that Bob would ever see his youngest daughter alive. Shortly after finishing lunch, Regina, Christina, and the babysitter's young son would go outside and play. As they were kind of cavorting around the courtyard on Semmer and Terrace apartments, a man approached them around 12 p.m. He disappeared and then returned to speak to the children again. This time, he offered Christina and the young boy $2 to stand watch at a nearby apartment. And he had, com- he had uh, claimed that the apartment belonged to him and his wife and that they were going to be moving some things and they needed them to stand watch so that nobody went into the apartment while they were there, weren't there. So he told them that he was taking Regina with him to pick up his grandkids and he would be back in less than a half an hour. Uh. I don't like you, Florida man. We don't like a lot of... I know exactly which Florida men's I like. Rocky, Alberto, and Edgy. Oh. And Rye. I'm like Mickey Mouse. (laughs) 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 I forgot they were in Florida. My brain doesn't work. No brains. I just went like completely blank. I'm like, do I know anyone in Florida? I have family in Florida and I like my interweb podcast buddies more and <laughs> if you're not listening to tidbits st- oh, what is it uh uh they've sh- motherfuckers so it's what's the fuss and, and then they have tidbits. tidbits but they also have disclaimers and not apologies and they also have the beer one like state of the beer or union of the beer yeah. or some shit like that and i'm drawing a blank sorry guys forgive me but listen to their podcast but go listen <laughs> we to have what's no the idea fuss. what it's called yes yeesh um, when Regina and the anonymous man didn't return, Christina started to worry. Just the week before her abduction, Regina had participated in an Orlando police program, which was designed to teach children to avoid dangerous situations with strangers. It soon dawned on, dawned on Christina that something awful could have potentially happened to her little sister. She and the babysitter's son ran back to the apartment where Christina tried to explain what had transpired to the babysitter. Instead of taking heed to what Christina was saying, the babysitter instead locked the door and ignored her, assuming that she was messing around and being dramatic. That's really good babysitting. Just, I'm just going to lock him out. You're being dramatic. Her? Do you think she's still working so we can hire her? <laughs> God. Why did you want to get rid of one of your kids? Mm, no. I like I like the torture. I loved him. <laughs> it wouldn't be until two hours later when the babysitter's boyfriend turned up that Christina finally got to detail what had transpired. Police searched southeast Orlando neighborhoods door to door. They rode horseback combing through wooded areas assisted by sniffer dogs trying to find clues or pick up a scent. We have every available officer out there looking, said police spokeswoman Betty Bowers. We have a helicopter searching the whole bit. On Tuesday, the 26th of June, over 100 Navy cadets joined in on the exhaustive search. Undergrowth was combed and winding canals were scanned. In fact, the initial search was said to be the largest manhunt in Orlando history. The whole city really came together on every level to help search for Regina May. It had an incredible effect on the community, said Barbara Tashlin, executive director of Adam Walsh Child Resource. The director of the resources. (laughs) (laughs) Executive director of Adam Walsh Child Resource Center in Winter Park. Posters and flyers featuring Regina's face were plastered all across the state. Regina was described as standing at about 3 feet 6 inches tall and weighed 45 pounds. She had blonde brown hair, 
to the down to the middle of her back and had brown eyes. On the day of her abduction, she departed her house wearing a blue and green flower print sundress and was wearing no shoes. She had a slight sore on the tip of her nose. The family also announced that they were offering a reward of $5,000 for the safe return of their daughter, while Crimeline was offering an additional th- an additional $1,000. In addition to the missing persons posters, a composite sketch of the abductor was generated. He was described as a white male of approximately six feet tall with a medium build and dark hair. He was estimated between 37 and 40 years old and was wearing a plaid shirt, faded jeans, and a gold watch with Roman numerals. His upper lip had been split as if he'd recently been in a fight. He was also missing two teeth on one side of his mouth. On his left forearm, he had a tattoo. He smelled oily like he worked for a mechanic or on cars. He didn't seem like a normal guy is what what Christina recalled. She also recollected that he smelt of alcohol. Shortly after the composite sketches flashed across the TV screens, statewide, a seven-year-old girl from Cocoa Beach had told her father that some very important news... Um, she was very adamant that this was the same man who attempted to abduct her from her home just days before Regina was abducted. As the young girl, Erin, had been sleeping, a man crept into her bedroom after prying loose a screen and unlocking her bedroom. The man attempted to lift Erin out of the window, and her nine-year-old sister, Lisa, woke up and started screaming to alert her parents. When he heard the child screaming, the kidnapper dropped Aaron on the grass outside and sprinted away. The police also started to investigate whether or not it was the same man abducted nine-year-old, a nine-year-old girl on her way home from school on on the 7th of June and raped and abandoned her in St. August, St. Augustine. In the first few days of the search, thousands of calls to the tip line were logged due to the sheer amount of phone calls. Police announced that they would need volunteers to help man those phone lines. The Adam Walsh, Adam Walsh research. See, we're just going to both fuck that name up today. It's not one. I even typed wash instead of Walsh. Rash. The Adam Walsh Resource Center in Orlando was quick to assemble the much-needed volunteers. Investigators met to examine what evidence they had on the case and determine which tips appeared to be valid and useful. Several of the tips had come from so-called psychics who detailed where Regina could be. God, stop fucking doing that. God. Sorry. It's like those people that give you unsolicited, like, pet and child care advice when they see that your, like, dog ran away or, like, your kid's acting up in the store. And they're like, let me just tell you. And you're like, fuck off. Fuck off with your unsolicited shit. And when your kid goes missing and fucking someone decides to, like, what was the, (laughs) Sandra, Sandra Brown, Sandra Brown or whatever. Your daughter's going to be found. Like, remember when she was talking about the three girls that were abducted in Ohio? And she's like, sorry, but your daughter's dead. Bullshit, your daughter's alive. Don't fucking help. Don't call. I don't want your help. But it happens a lot. Okay, several of the tips had come from so-called psychics who detailed where Regina could be. Um, Each and every one of these locations was checked thoroughly by the investigators and police, but no evidence of Regina or the kidnapper could be found. However, one search that commenced on the 26th of June uncovered human remains. They had been hidden under a thick, excuse me, they had been hidden under thick palmettos along Chicksaw Trail. The remains would later be identified as 32-year-old William Legg, who had been missing since July of 1983. The Armstrong family immersed themselves into doing every single thing that they could to find Regina. Both Bob and Donna took leaves of absence from their jobs, assisted the police in door-to-door searches. They joined the search party and plotted through the many swamps of Orlando, sauntered through the woodlands. They did everything they could. They met with community groups to discuss the abduction and brainstorm ways to garner more national attention. They printed and distributed missing person posters across the state. Before they, before, they had rarely watched the news or read the newspapers. Now they collected every piece of information they could. They were completely devoted and active in the search of Regina. That's all I get. Like, I fucking part a piece of a paragraph. I got one piece of a paragraph out. Good for me. Somebody give me a rubber tortilla. <laughs> it's so soft. <laughs> it's so soft. <laughs> John Walsh, the father of Adam Walsh, took to the Today program where he showed a picture of Regina and a sketch of her abductor. Since the murder of his own son, he had 
been prominently involved in the national child protection efforts. We believe she is alive, and until someone shows us differently, we will never believe this otherwise, said Bob. By now, 18 full-time detectives were working on the abduction, assisted by 130 officers and Navy cadets. Most of the tips had most of the tips that had been logged were coming from concerned citizens who thought the abductor sketch looked like somebody they knew. One caller said that he saw a man in Disney World with a little girl who looked like Regina. An Orange County deputy sheriff went to the theme park and found nothing. In the first couple of weeks, over 200 men who resembled the suspect were questioned and investigated by police. They're like, hey, random citizen, you look like this guy. Come in. We're questioning you now. And they're like, fuck, what did Thank I do? Thank you, random citizen. <laughs> I just watched that the other day. <laughs> Love that movie. Megamind, for those who don't didn't catch the reference. And if you didn't, then go watch it, I guess. Then fucking go educate yourself. Right. God, that is like one of the best. Before we feed you to the spiders. The spiders. <laughs> Many tips of reported sightings of Regina and her abductor were also logged. Towards the end of June, a call came from Jeff Smith, an assistant manager at Popeye's Famous Fried Chicken, which is Spencer's favorite place in the whole entire world. It is. At 45 North Orange Blossom Trail. He told police that a man who looked exactly like the composite sketch of the abductor had come into the restaurant with a can of ravioli and asked the cashier to open it. Smith glanced at the man and then glanced towards the poster of the composite that was hanging on the restaurant in the restaurant. It was the exact same man, he contended. As he called the police, the man swiftly made an exit and was followed out by two teenage boys who had witnessed the entire event unfold. The suspicious patron got into a brown car and sped off. Ravioli was Regina's favorite food, and this gave her family a boost of morale that she could potentially still be alive and be being held against her will. A terrifying thought, but better than the other um, glaring alternative, that she was dead. I know Regina's out there, said Donna. She hasn't left this area. Shortly afterwards, police received a phone call from a maid who worked in a small hotel on U.S. Highway 192. She said the two men had checked into the hotel with a small girl. She told police that she believed that one of the men looked like the suspect in the abduction of Regina. When police checked the room, nobody was there. However, they found Regina's missing persons poster torn to pieces. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like somebody had been in there. And it was probably, <clears throat> probably her. By, <clears throat> by early June, Orlando police reduced the number of investigators working on the search. The number of calls the tip line was receiving had dropped significantly. During the first few days of the disappearance, police received hundreds of calls per day. Now they were getting barely t- 10 a day. Some investigators assigned to the case had worked 16 and 18 hours per day. They they had followed every single lead and every case <clears throat> and had other cases they needed to focus on. Meanwhile, Floridians were shocked once again by another kidnapping attempt when an eight-year-old boy was taken from his home in Cocoa Beach as he lay asleep on the sofa. He had carried the terrified boy to a vacant lot approximately 50 yards from his house, put him down, ordered him not to tell anybody and then left. That's not suspicious. Yeah, that's not fucking weird at all. Um, the boy ran home and told his parents who called the local police. When a composite sketch was drawn up the, of the suspected kidnapper, he looked eerily similar to the man involved in Regina's kidnapping. Are the two cases linked? Could they be? <laughs> I don't know. Could they? Why did I type that like that? Could the I, two cases be linked? And then in your head, it was like, dung, dung. I know. You're like... <laughs> You have, like, sound effects and shit. I know. Shit. I had some NCIS shit going on in my head. <laughs> Police decided that they were not related. They did, however, conclude that this cad... Ca- Cadnapping. Cad. <laughs> Don't cadnap people. It's fucking shameful. Especially not in Florida. Especially <laughs> not in Florida with a Florida man. Fuck. <laughs> don't cadnap it's especially bad in florida <laughs> donnie baker here <laughs> swear to god state law don't cadnap it's especially bad see that turtle <laughs> bobbing its head like a wiener 
<laughs> your fucking wife's an eyesore, Mitchell. I'll say it right to your face. I swear to God. State law. State law. God. Donnie <clears throat> Baker. All right. Donnie Baker here. I love him. I will scissor kick you in the karate <laughs> artery. Fuck. They did conclude, however, that this kidnapping was related to an earlier kidnapping of Aaron from Cocoa Beach. In both instances, the man left the child unharmed within close proximity of their homes. Investigators said that the two incidents could be interpreted as a plea for help by a person who was struggling with their impulses. As the investigation into Regina's Regina's disappearance started to die down, Bob and Donna continued to make public appearance and make appeal after appeal. You try to keep busy during the day, but it hits you at night, said Bob. Police were still receiving a few reported sightings of Regina and her abductor. In August, several reported sightings led them to Los Angeles and California. One of the callers said he saw a girl that looked like Regina getting off of a Gardenia transit bus in Pacific, off the Pacific Coast. Pacific the PCH, God damn it. That thing. The Pacific Coast Highway. And Western Avenue with a man who was acting somewhat suspicious and holding the girl very tightly as though she th- he thought that the wind would blow her away. He called the police when they saw a photograph of Regina on a broadcast put on by CBS about her abduction. Another call came in from Sue Evans, who was an assistant manager at Burger King in Harbor City. Mm-hmm. Sue told the police that she had seen a young girl look very similar to Regina in the fast food chain at least four or five times. She added that the little girl was acting very strange and funny, as if the two reported sightings in the same vicinity seemed to be a much-needed glimmer of hope for Regina's family. Even more reported sightings came in. Workers at a donor... Donut... A donor shop. Worker, donor shop... Workers at a donut shop and a liquor store within a half a mile of the Burger King also reported seeing Regina. The little girl ordered a frosted donut with candied sprinkles, sprinkles, Regina's favorite. According to most of the witnesses, the girl seemed afraid and that the man accompanying her prohibited her from speaking. We are going on the assumption that it is the girl seen, Regina Mae Armstrong, said Division Lieutenant Mike. Oh, Marco. Mike, 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 Mike. Marculius. Police sent out mass undercover officers to stake out the area where the reported sightings occurred. They asked marked patrol units to keep their presence to a minimum so not to spook the man if he was, in fact, the abductor. This was the best break so far in a case that seemed to be picking up little to no momentum. Regina had been missing for months, and each and every reported sighting never panned out. In just a few days, however, hopes would be crashed when the witnesses positively identified the man and his six-year-old daughter as the duo they had seen and not Regina and her abductor. The man and his daughter were picked up by police as they stood at a bus shelter. The man looked extremely similar to the composite sketch, but the little girl was taller than Regina and had shorter hair. He told police that he was a single father who had custody of his daughter. He was struggling to get by, he told them explaining that he looked scruffy because he couldn't afford haircuts. It was them who had been spotted on the bus, in Burger King, and at the donut shop. It was remarkable how much the child looked like Regina, said Jeff Peck, Orlando Police Department spokesman. The Armstrong Armstrong family had their hopes raised only to be dashed. It was a devastating blow for Bob and Donna, who cried the whole plane journey back home. Regina's disappearance sparked a quickly expanding search, a search that Orlando hadn't quite seen before. The abduction of Regina was the first of its kind in a city wherein abduction had taken place and had been witnessed. In August of 1985, 40 million postcards bearing Regina's face were distributed by Advo System, a missing child campaign. These postcards featured a new missing child each week and were mailed directly to houses countrywide. A missing child is displayed on the face of the postcard with information surrounding the disappearance as well as the phone number of the National Missing and Exploited Children's Center in Washington, D.C. It was theorized that if Regina was still alive, that somebody would recognize her on the postcard. Billboards would be erected around Florida, Tennessee, and South Carolina. The billboards were created and paid for by Peterson Outdoor Advertising Company and the Southland Corps. Corporation. 
Corporation. <laughs> Sorry. They showed Regina's face on the left-hand side with information about her on the right-hand side. As the number of investigators assigned to the case continued to periodically drop, two still working on the case went to Bartow in Florida to speak with a Tampa man who had been charged with raping and murdering a four-year-old. Her name was Karen M. Radford. 39-year-old Homer Manns didn't match the description of the kidnapper in Regina's case, but investigators wanted to investigate nevertheless. He doesn't even match the general description. We can't place him in Orange County during the time. But it's the hottest lead that we have, said Orlando Captain George McNamara. By the following days, invest. By the following day, investigators announced that he wasn't a suspect. Regina's birthday passed, what should have been her first day in first grade. Bob and Donna had moved from their two-bedroom apartment because it was it held too many memories for their lost daughter. In their new home, they had set aside a room for Regina if she ever returned home. They decorated it with posters and other things that a little girl would very much like. They became very strict with Christina, not even allowing her to venture to the mailbox on her own. The pain of waiting is never... The pain of waiting never diminishes in some cases and intensifies with time. The constant what-ifs played in Bob and Donna's minds invariably. Eventually, as the many parents of missing children before them, the stress of the abduction of their youngest child proved to be too much and the couple decided to separate. You find yourself snapping at each other for no reason, said Bob. This is actually a pretty common thing. I know, and it's so freaking sad. Like, I get it, but damn. the That boy that went missing he ran away from home mason in saint george mm-hmm. his parents ended up getting divorced over his fucking disappearance too in september of 1987 a child's skull and dress were discovered in a construction site in oviedo Ova, i hope that's how you say it despite the extensive coverage in the abduction of regina oviedo police did not connect the finding with the abduction and wouldn't do so for over a year when a new police chief came in his name was dennis peterson took over and noticed that the dress matched the exact description of regina's dress i don't see how the skull of a small child can be found and a dress be put in a locker and no one say anything about it he said in disgust in fact bob and donna didn't even find out about the discovery and the possible connection in possible connection to Regina until they saw it on television. City officials were horrified to discover that their own police lockers contained the human remains and one of the most highly publicized disappearances in Central Florida history. Former Oviedo Chief of Police, R. Wade Hancock, had played... Hancock? (laughs) 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 Hancock! I sidestepped erected earlier, <laughs> and I wasn't sure I was going to make it through, but Hancock got me. Well, I didn't say Hancock. I said Hancocked. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Former Oviedo chief of police, R. Wade Hancock, had placed the skull and dress in the evidence locker and didn't think to notify a statewide hotline for missing persons about the remains. He didn't think to alert Orlando investigators. He didn't think to try and figure out who the skull belonged to. Hancock had been fired last October after he botched two murder investigations, arrived two and a half hours late to a drug raid, and falsified timesheets. He sounds amazing, like an amazing employee. I bet he was the greatest chief of police ever. Let's just put a skull and a dress in a fucking locker and not tell anybody. Just all willy fucking nilly. Jesus Christ. I had to read that like four or five times to be like, did I really just read that? Yes, he did. Was that real? Ish. Due to the length of time the skull had sat baking under the Floridian sun and got saturated in the torrential... Torrential? Is that right? Torrential? Yes. That is actually correct. Oh, my God. Uh, Said it right and then stopped myself. In the torrential rain that Floridians have become accustomed to... Identification was impossible. However, forensic experts could determine that the skull belonged to a child of five to seven years old. They also determined that she could have been deceased anywhere from one one year up to three years. Bob drove down to the Oviedo police station to look at the dress that was found in the the <laughs> to look at the dress that was found with the skull. It took me about 10 seconds to see it was Regina's. I was hurt. It flashed back to the day I dropped her off at the babysitter's and she stepped out of my truck, he said. 
Donna also went to the police station and identified the now weathered dress as one her daughter had worn that fateful day. Regina's death certificate was then signed. As if the news wasn't appalling enough, the mishandling of the case just added to the grief. By now, the trail was completely cold. There's no way of saying what might have been if they had handled it properly, said Orange Osceola. (laughs) I don't know how to say that. Let me see it. I think I know what you're trying to say. Right there. Osceola. Osceola. State Attorney Robert Egan. The site where the skull was found was once desolated and dotted with thick brushland. Now it was known as Twin Rivers in a housing development. With paved roads and blissfully unaware homeowners inside their $65,000 to $100,000 modern dwellings. The wasteland that once surrounded Regina's skull had been obliterated by machinery from the construction site. There was no chance in finding any clues now. Time was on Regina's killer's side. Police announced that they believe the killer to be somebody living in Central Florida due to the location the body was found. Based on where we found the skull and clothing, I personally feel it was someone that in that area, said Oviedo Police Chief Dennis Peterson. The fact that Regina was disposed of in the same state where she was abducted also suggests such. After three long years in limbo, the family now had some closure and Regina could finally be laid to rest. A memorial service for the young girl was held at the chapel in the grove of Woodlawn Funeral. Jesus Christ, could this be a longer, more ridiculous fucking name for a funeral home? (laughs) The chapel in the grove of Woodlawn Funeral Home in Orlando. Jesus. The skies were clear and bright as Regina's family members and friends gathered to bid her farewell. Inside the dainty pink and white casket, embellished with carnations, was baby breath and a weathered skull of Regina. At the altar was a portrait of Regina and a big smile on her face with her bright dress. This is how her family wanted to see her remembered. The family had asked that the mourners make a donation to the Adam Walsh Child Resource Center in lieu of flowers. The funeral and burial plot were donated by Woodland Funeral Home Manager Cliff Wilson, and the gravestone was paid for by the donations made to the Adam Walsh Child Resource Center. Another potential and last documented suspect in the abduction didn't come to light until 2005 when police announced that they would be going to Citrus County to question John Cooey. On the 24th of February in 2005, Cooey abducted a nine-year-old who was named Jessica Lunsford from her bedroom in the dead of night. He kept Jessica in his bedroom and for three days he raped her over and over again. On the third day, Cooey buried Jessica alive. Orlando police noticed some similarities in the cases and both Jessica and Regina were young girls, both had dark hair. When Orlando police questioned him, he said that he did kill Jessica but denied any involvement with the murder of Regina. I didn't have anything to do with that and I wish I could help you. I don't know why I did this, but I did. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this, said Cooey. When they ruled ruled him out as a suspect for the rape and murder of Jessica, oh wait, and they ruled him out as a suspect... For the rape and murder of Jessica, he was sentenced to death, but he died of cancer before the sentence could be carried out. With such vivid descript- with such a vivid description of the kidnapper and a handful of reported sightings, there was a time when it was widely speculated that this case could have been solved. As the tips ran cold and reported sightings turned out to be false, faith that Regina would be found alive and then that her would be found alive and then the faith that her killer would be identified all faltered. Another drastic blow was that the sheer negligence of the Oviedo police force when they found the child's skull. Regina's family will forever question whether the killer could have been captured by the police if they had acted accordingly. Regina's family will never know, and they question her how she met such a fate. By the time the skull was linked with Regina, it was much too late. By the time the skull was linked with Regina, it was much too late. I have not forgotten about Regina, and I do not want Central Florida to forget about Regina, said Bob, and they have forgotten nothing. If you have any information regarding the murder of Regina May Armstrong, please call 1-800-423-8477. Okay, the next one is the unsolved murder of Amber Hagerman, which you've heard of, heard of us. I can't even say my own goddamn words. You've heard us talk about before because 
Hers was at the exact same time as the cadet murders, which we slightly mentioned it while we were doing that, but it was literally the same time, same area. Um, this is a true crime piece by Christine Pinhale, who is a true crime researcher, writer, and editor. She runs a true, true crime. A true crime. True crime. <laughs> she runs a true crime site called The True Crime Files. This site is dedicated to all things true crime, investigations, reviews, updates, etc. Christine shines a light on unsolved murders and disappearances in hopes to give a voice to victims and their loved ones. You can follow Christine on Twitter and Facebook to discuss this case or to just chat about true crime. So that's where the information from this story that we are getting ready to tell came from. On the afternoon of January 13th of 1996, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman went on a bike ride with her five-year-old brother, Ricky. To make the most of a warm winter day in Arlington, Texas, they headed to an abandoned grocery store parking lot that had a bike ramp that many kids in the neighborhood used. Amber and Ricky spent time playing in the parking lot, and after a while, Ricky decided to head back home, leaving his sister to enjoy cycling on her own. Minutes later, Amber was abducted. Four days after Amber's kidnapping, a man walking his dog stumbled upon her body in a creek behind the Forest Hills apartment. An apartment complex less than five miles from the parking lot where Amber had last been seen riding her bike. An autopsy later revealed that Amber had been kept alive for two days after being taken. She had been beaten and sexually assaulted before her throat was cut and her body was tossed into the creek. Amber's murder remains unsolved. There is... There is only one real theory to this case. Amber was kidnapped by a stranger. 78-year-old retired machinist Jem Kevill witnessed Amber's abduction from his backyard. Amber was riding her bike alone in the parking lot when the opportunistic killer jumped out of the back of his black or dark blue pickup truck and grabbed the little girl. Jimmy stated that Amber screamed once and that was ki- and she was kicking when she was hauled into the back of the truck. Jimmy described Amber's kidnapper as white or Hispanic male, aged 25 to 40, under six feet tall with a medium build. After Jimmy called the police, there were they were on the scene in a matter of minutes. Even though Amber's family members even though Amber's family, members of the community, and the authorities searched frantically for Amber, they were unable to locate her in time. Stranger abductions are extremely rare and difficult to solve, as there is usually little information to go off of. Unfortunately, forensics are of little help in this case. When Amber's body was found, she was naked except for one sock, and running water in the creek had washed away critical forensic evidence. Mike Sidmans, the investigative sergeant who was in charge of Amber's case at the time, explained... There had been very a very large storm, and Amber was not only in the water, but running water in the creek bed. So there had been a tremendous amount of water flow over her body, which obviously made it hard in terms of trace evidence. It would not surprise me if Amber's killer had committed similar crimes. Although it is unlikely, I hope he's already in prison and just not been linked to Amber's murder due to the absence of forensic evidence. No doubt many of you have heard the Amber Alert program, but did you realize this is actually after Amber Hagerman? After Amber's murder, Diane Simone, a Fort Worth mother who had never met Amber, contacted a local radio station. She questioned why broadcasters sent out severe weather storm warnings, but but did not alert the public when a child had been abducted. Perhaps if the community had known that Amber had been abducted and was aware of the suspect and the vehicle description, Amber would have been located before she was killed. The idea snowballed, and at Diane's request, it became what is known as the Amber Alert Program. The program is currently being used in all 50 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, Indian Country, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and 22 other countries. And according to the Amber Alert Program's website, as of November 7, no way, as of November 2017, the system has resulted in the successful recovery of 897 children. Donna Williams, Amber's mother, has called the implementation of the Amber Alert program bittersweet. Donna cannot help but wonder what would have happened if we would have had the alert when Amber went missing. Could it have helped bring her back to me? Although Donna is thankful for every missing child that the system assists in locating, it sadly brings her to no closer to finding her daughter's murderer. Who do you think killed Amber? Roughly 8,000 leads in Amber's case have been investigated, and despite the hard work of nearly 50 police officers and federal agents, Amber's case remains unsolved. 
The police, however, refuse to give up on finding Amber's killer. They insist that someone out there has knowledge and will aid in bringing closure to Amber's family and our community. Anyone with information about Amber's murder is asked to contact Detective Ben Lopez at 817-459-5373. There's a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and grand jury indictment of the suspect. Tipsters can also remain anonymous by contacting Tarrant County Crime Stoppers at 817-469-TIPS. When her mom gave like the picture and her description and everything, they had a video of her for her birthday that had just happened, like her ninth birthday had just happened. Mm. And her mom was a single mom and like they were literally just scraping by. She bought... Amber's birthday present and had to put it on layaway and it was $40 for this present for Amber for her birthday and um, she got it off layaway and gave it to her and what it was I can't remember everything that was in but part of it was a set of sheets that had Pocahontas on them oh and there's a video that they have that they showed like while they were looking for Amber to, t- to help get a look of what she really looks like instead of just a picture but they showed this video of her opening her Pocahontas sheets, and she was so excited over sheets, over bed sheets. Like it was just crazy how I can fall. I can totally get down on that though because mm-hmm. I remember that my mom um, for my twelfth birthday she actually let me like decorate my own room, and I'll never forget it because I asked for a bed set that was like a black fucking puma or like a leopard yeah like coming out of the jungle and it was something from like finger hut you know yeah. and i was like oh my god and you had the bed skirt and my mom was actually gonna let me like put my own room together and shit she bought this fucking bed set same thing single mom scraping by mm-hmm. and i was so excited to have a grown-up bed set mm-hmm. and she was excited yeah see it's so sad there's video um you can look it up on YouTube and you can find the video of her opening said gift. And it's just sad, like a mom struggling. And I guess her little brother, um, he was five and he was supposed to like look after her. But you know how you send your kids outside and you're like, watch out for each other. You know, what are you going to do? What is a five-year-old going to do? But I guess he really... Um, took it hard because he was supposed to be watching over his sister and he watched her get, or she got taken when he left. He didn't watch her get taken, but he left and she was taken and he felt really guilty about it for a really, really long time. I listened to the once upon a true crime episode about them. If you want to go check it out, go listen to it about her. There's more, more information, not a whole lot because there's clearly just not that much information about this whole unsolved case the next case is called the babes in the woods and this is fucked up i don't like it like i want this one more is, yeah this one <laughs> this is actually one of the rougher ones i want more i just this one this one and the very last one that i did just mm-hmm. bugs the fuck i out know of me. you're like what like turning the pages over i'm I like, know, you're like where's what the rest the fuck i know i know, I know. Stanley Park is to Vancouver, Canada, what Central Park is to New York City, United States. The lush evergreen nature spot is the third largest urban park in North America. It overlooks the city's grand skyline. On the 14th of January, 1953, Albert Tong was clearing bush for new trees near Beaver Lake in Stanley Park when he came across the skeletal remains of two young children. They were laying head to foot and had been covered with a woman's raincoat and an and an accumulation of leaves that had fallen since their death. They were wearing shoes and only rags remained of their clothing. With the case already cold when the remains were discovered, police went public with what little information they had in the hopes that somebody would come forward from bits of cloth found around the bodies police attempted to recreate the clothing which was likely worn by the children it wasn't an easy feat the small pieces of rotted cloth were carefully washed examined under a microscope which showed traces of red with the assistance of a yards good manager of a vancouver department store the cloth was determined to be a red fraser tartan it was made in a way that police could conclude that most of it was likely homemade 
homemade from an old piece of cloth. Police were also able to determine that there was also material from corduroy pants found at the scene. Early on in the, in the investigation, over 100 tips were logged from people who recollected seeing a boy and a girl that were playing around the park in 1947. One woman who had contacted the police said that she was in Stanley Park October 5th of 1947, when she saw a woman and two children who looked to be either Swedish or Norwegian. How would you even know that they were Swedish or Norwegian? I don't know. That's what I was wondering. That's... Is there something that I'm fucking missing? Because I... That's like looking at a Korean person and being like, they were definitely from Malaysia or Japan. What? Like, how do you look at a person and know that they were from Norway or fucking Sweden? Maybe they had clogs on. Wait, what did they wear? Which would be Amsterdam with wooden (laughs) shoes, neither of which are Norway or Sweden. So close. So close, yet so far away. Just like South Korea and fucking Japan. (laughs) But that's how they know. Um, Maybe they had like the. No, that's Germany. I don't (laughs) know what they wear. Wow, see, you're just proving my point over and over, dude. That's like, (laughs) that was my favorite thing. So I actually had a friend, a Japanese friend, Maho, when we were younger. And she would, we'd always be like, can you guess where she's from? And somebody's like, she's definitely Korean. I can tell by the shape of her eyes. And she'd look at me. Did she just call me a Korean? I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And I'm like, she's actually from Japan, from Tokyo, Japan. And he, he's like, oh, no, I would definitely say she's from, like, Seoul, Korea. I'm like, she's not Korean. That's like trying to guess that I'm from Utah because... Yeah. Why? Because I have brown eyes? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Like, how the fuck would you know somebody was from Sweden or Norway? They were definitely either Swedish or Norwegian, you know? It's fucking... Oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you know? Sweden and Norway. Mary. The caller said that the woman had two children enter. Oh, Mary. The caller said that the woman and the two children entered a bush and that the woman was carrying a hatchet. She claimed that the woman spotted her and started to cut small branches from trees. According to the caller, the woman called the boy either Ronnie or Rodney. Around 45 minutes later, the caller claimed that she saw the woman leaving the park but was not accompanied by the two children and that she was missing her coat. This this moment stuck out in the in the woman's memory because it was the date she called off her engagement to her fiancé. Wow. Okay. Mary. The caller claimed that she saw the woman leaving the park, but she was not accompanied by the two children and that their coat and that her coat was missing. This moment stuck out in her memory because it was the day she called off her engagement with her fiance. Investigators worked hard trying to match the bodies with missing person reports. They scoured through thousands of school board records and social services records in search of the two children that had inexplicably vanished. The case was handled by Vancouver Detective Don McKay. Do you think it was Mackay? <laughs> Sorry. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it was Mackay. And during his investigation, he put tracers out on 76 pairs of children. These tracers led to investigations by police in the United States, Canada, Scotland, Austria, and even Venezuela. Tips and leads came across because Venezuela is so similar to Norway. (laughs) It really is. Jesus. Tips and leads came in from across the world. A young boy from Vancouver reported that he made two friends but never saw them again. When he saw their mother on the street, he asked about his two friends, but the woman just brushed him off. An English naval officer contacted Vancouver police to say that the children may be his since his estranged wife had come to Canada with them. Ironically, one tip came in. From the mother of then 13-year-old Clifford Olson, who later went on to become a child serial killer. Mrs. Olson had wondered about a neighbor who had been acting very peculiar in an interview with police. The investigation was thorough, but the so-called babes in the woods could not be identified. The case gradually went cold, but as time progressed, so did advancement in DNA technology. In 1998, genetic material from the children revealed that they were two boys, not a boy and a girl like initially believed. Moreover, the two little boys were half-brothers and were aged around five and eight. While the revelation was... Whoa. While the revelation was a breakthrough, it was somewhat bittersweet as it meant that it it had set investigators on the wrong trail and turned away hundreds of tips. Had we known at the time that they were both boys, it might have been a world of difference. 
said retired Vancouver Police Department Detective Brian Honeybun. Honeyburn. Honeybun? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody Honeybun. I have some in my pantry and they are delicious. Ooh, did you know one. that you can take them and put them in the microwave for mm-hmm. 10 seconds and turn them into ooey gooey messes oh, of yes, I delicious did. sugary fucking carbohydrate? I'm so hungry. Me too. Anyway, the whole file must be reviewed and any involving a male and female can probably be eliminated. In 2003, retired Detective Honeyburn took on... Detective Honeybun. It's Honeyburn. Honeybun. It is? No. Oh. I want to detect some honeybuns. I'm hungry. (laughs) Detective Honeyburn took on the challenge to solve the cold case. He had worked in the investigation for years, and when he retired, he made made it his life ambition to crack the case. His investigation led him to mission in search of a single mother with two children who had been picked up while hitchhiking from mission to Vancouver. The person who picked her up recalled how the two boys were wearing aviator helmets, much like the ones found at the scene. While at mission investigating this lead, Honeyburn appeared on the Rafe Mayer radio talk show to speak about his lead. Afterwards, an elderly couple from Mission called in with a tip that led to the conclusion that the woman from Mission wasn't involved in the murder. The couple had redirected Honeyburn to where he could find the woman's children, all of whom were still alive and well. During his investigation, Honeyburn uncovered that the children's shoes were available to purchase before World War II. This revelation opened up the possibility that the children may have been murdered Earlier than initially believed. The discovery made Honeyburn think back to an earlier discounted witness account from 1944. A sailor from Esquimalt. 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 <laughs> Let's rub noses like the Esquimoses. Esquimalt. <laughs> A sailor from Esquimalt. 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 <laughs> Fuck you. Okay. A sailor from Esquimalt. <laughs> I don't I really don't know how to Esquimalt. And his fiance had been walking along the seawall in Stanley Park when a woman came running out from within the bushes. She appeared to be wearing just one shoe and no coat. She let out a wailing sound as she took off running. With this new information, Honeyburn had the Vancouver police check the school attendance records to see if they could identify any children that had vanished in May of 1944. Unfortunately, the only lead had an exas- had exasperated Honeyburn to a dead end. After popular theory over the years, and one that was established by Vancouver De- Vancouver detective Don Mackey, 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 <laughs> Don Mackey was. That the two boys were the children of Madeline Fortier. Fortier? Fortier. Madeline Fortier, a woman of Levi, Quebec, who told McKay that she had given her children up for adoption in Vancouver. McKay worked for years on this case. It was his pet case, so to speak. In 1961, he said, Somewhere, somebody must know these kids, and someday I'll meet that some. Someday I'll meet that somebody. Sadly, however, McKay died before solving the case. Before his death, he discounted the theory that there were those children were those of Fortier. He believed that the killer, who was either the children's mother or guardian, had taken them into the park on the pretense of going on a picnic. She then led them to the secluded area, struck them both across the head with the hatchet, and left them. He considered the fact that the woman may have jumped into the water under the Lion's Gate Bridge and drowned. Today, the file number 53-636 still sits in the basement of 3Tel... 3Tel. Uh-huh. 312 Main Street. The case files, Babes in the Wood, is as old and dusty as the trail of the killer, who presumably is long dead by now. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. That one is fucked up, though. Mm-hmm. From the aviator helmet to being whacked with a hatchet. Yeah, I don't like it. All of that all. one is just fucking weird. That sounds to me like a mom that was, like, mentally unstable. She yep. wasn't okay. No. Took her I kids agree. in the wood, fucking smacked them with... Especially where they weren't reported missing. Ever. Well, Ever. and th- you know what's really fucked up is there are a lot of things that have happened recently that just make it... To me, I, it it kind of pointed out how easy it is to make kids go missing mm-hmm. in certain situations. There is actually a, a case of a little boy who was 13 years old. His dad and stepmom fucking starved him to death. And they took him out and put him in a chest and buried him. 
And he was gone for two years. Two fucking years before authorities, like, had any idea. Damn. And that was recent. Well, when they're under school age... No, he wasn't. He 13 wasn't. years old. Oh, 13. Well, I was saying when they're under school age, mm-hmm. sorry, I was on my own thought process. Under school age, like, who's going to know? If they don't go anywhere, if they don't go to school, they don't do anything. Maybe the doctor, but they wouldn't report anything because they would just assume they went to a different doctor. It's, dude, it is ridiculously easy for kids to go missing nowadays and, like, parents to fucking hide that shit. I don't know. Okay, so this is our last one, and this is one that I decided to throw in here because it fucks with me big time. So the last one that we're doing is called The Farmhouse Murder of Septic Tank Sam. How would you like that to be your final fucking resting memory of you? Septic Tank Sam. Septic Tank Sam. Septic Tank Sam. All right, so the reason why I chose to do this one is because it's fucked off, it's violent, and homeboy ended up in a shitter tank. Mm Mm-hmm. An abandoned farm in the middle of Toefield, Alberta, Canada. So sorry. What? Sorry about so, that. So, sorry about that, eh? <clears throat> Was the scene of an unexpected grisly discovery on, 13, on the 13th of April in 1977. This story started to unfold when Charlie and Mavis... Mavis. <laughs> okay. Charlie and Mavis McLeod made their way to a derelict farm. You can derelict my balls. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I always think about weird shit when I'm with you. Okay. (laughs) The couple had owned the farm, but had since left it abandoned. They had intended on searching their septic tank for a pump. Wait, back the fuck up. The couple had owned the farm, but had since left it abandoned. They had intended on searching their septic tank for a pump, but uncovered something much more gruesome. As they opened the lid, they noticed a gray wool sock and a brown shoe bobbing in the murky, pungent water. Upon closer inspection, they noticed that there was a a leg attached to it. We went and got the cops real fast because we knew there was something wrong, recalled Charlie. After officers arrived at the scene, they started using ice cream pails to scoop Uh, the gooey liquid. Yep, let that fucking sink in. No. All right. Scoop the gooey liquid from the septic tank. It was here that they discovered the body of a male submerged 1.8 meters deep, which is about 5'9", into the septic tank, 5 feet 9 inches. Mm-mm. into the septic tank it was determined that he had been submerged in the tank for several months as if the discovery wasn't ghastly enough the man had suffered unfathomable torture at the hands of whoever killed him and then stuffed him in the shitter tank head first <laughs> his autopsy sorry i just i was morbid okay his autopsy concluded that he'd been shot several times however before being shot he'd been burned with a blowtorch and cigarettes he'd also been brutally beaten and sexually mutilated his killer had covered him in limestone and dumped him in the septic tank hoping that his body would dissolve the autopsy also also concluded that the man had suffered some kind of illness during his formative child years The young, unidentified man became known as Septic Tank Sam. Due to advanced decomposition, he was rendered unrecognizable. However, it was determined that he was of aboriginal heritage and anywhere from between 20 and 40 years old. That's a great range. Thank you. He had brown hair and stood around 5 feet 5 inches tall to 5 feet 7 inches tall. Investigators were going to have a difficult time identifying him and therefore potentially identifying his killer. Due to the decomposition, his fingerprints could not be lifted. In fact, the pathologist initially found it difficult to determine whether the body was that of a man or a woman. He was wearing a blue Levi shirt and a, with a gray t-shirt, blue jeans, and, a, and wallaby shoes. In an attempt to identify him, forensic experts examined his skull and sculpted a clay mold of his face in hopes that somebody somewhere would identify him. In addition to the clay sculpture, several composite sketches were drawn up and shared throughout the country. His dental records were also sent across the country. They were even published in Canadian dental magazines in the hopes that a dentist would somewhere would recognize them and what dental work he had done was most likely carried out in Canada. The forensic experts theorized that the body was that of a native Indian and came to the conclusion based on his shovel-faced teeth. Due to his clothing, that was a quote, shovel-faced teeth. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Due to his clothing, investigators suspected that he was a farm laborer or construction worker. They also surmised that he wasn't local because he didn't match any missing persons report from Alberta. Shovel face teeth. You got shovel face teeth. Listen here, you got shovel face teeth. Over the forthcoming years, there were many theories as to who Sam was. Some speculated that he may have been killed as a revenge for a heinous crime such as child molestation. The sexual mutilation was indicative of this, some theories say. Now, some also contended that the killer must have known the area to lo- to the location of the band. The okay, okay, all right. Oh God, sorry about that. Eh? Some also contended that the killer must have known the area and location of the abandoned farmland and the septic tank. After the initial flurry of publicity and investigation, the homicide investigation that haunted the small farming community quickly went cold. The identity of Sam, along with the identity of his killer, is no less a mystery than the than on the day that he was... Okay, all right. It's a good <laughs> thing this is the last one. The identity of Sam, along with the identity of his killer, is no less a mystery than on the day he was discovered. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Edmonton Cemetery. So he likely could have been a child molestation. A chomo. He was a chomo. Could have been. It is a theory that he was a chomo. And that's why he got burned, shot, and pee-pee cut off and shoved headfirst into a shitter tank. Because no chomo. Because hashtag no chomo. (laughs) (laughs) I I stole that, too, by the way. I'm not trying to take credit for the chomo thing, but... Chomo's been out for a long fucking time. The no chomo. No chomo? No chomo. Where did oh, that come from? It came from Chuck and Adam like a long time ago. No chomo. Uh, yeah, but the like the phrase right. chomo has been out like since we were in high school. Your niece, we came up with a new one. Uh-oh. For child abuse. Oh, what? Chabu. Chabu? Chabu. No chabu. No chabu. Because she kept screaming out child abuse. I'm like, all right, somebody's probably going to call. We need uh, a code like, word. I'm going to need you to not fucking do that. We need Be, a code word. Stop it. So we started chabu. Well, I think it was her and Calvin that started it. Chabu. Chabu. Oh my God, we're we're finished fumble fucking around the unsolved mysteries. So, unsolved murders. Murders, not mysteries. And you know what? I might do some more unsolved murders, but I'm actually almost done with the book that I made my friend purchase for me so that we could do this episode that I've been talking about doing for a long, long time. And I'm not going to give you any hints to what it is. So, maybe don't chimo people. Mm Mm-hmm. No chomo. No chomo. And uh, stay, stay out, out of chalk, chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> One little snore out of her. Oh.